stand with me, if you would, this morning. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2 this morning, if you would. Mark chapter 2. Margaret Heimlich, so good to see you. Give her a big hand. It's her birthday today, Margaret. I'm glad you chose to spend your birthday listening to me preach. That makes my day. All right. So good to have you. Several things I want to mention real quickly. Um, first of all, I'll be sending an email out this week, probably a video update and report. Uh, we have some exciting things that have been happening. We'll give you an update on the building project. Uh, also, our children's pastor search. We think we'll be sharing with you um, a a new hire that we'll get to share with you this week. And also, maybe some of you saw last night for the first time we were released to begin advertising for North Point Bible College and Graduate School. We'll become an extension site of theirs. Um, North Point is in Boston. Uh, it's fully accredited, and we'll be able to start that uh, this fall. And so we'll be giving you some updates on all of that as well. If you notice the screen's moving up and down just a little bit, it's not you. You don't need new glasses. We, it's How many know it's windy outside? All right. And uh, these poles that hold the projectors are connected into the roof. And so there's just a little bit of movement there. And uh, so that's what's going on. At the end of this service, we'll be baptizing seven. Hope everyone will stay. We'll, we'll try to, uh, I'll try to move the sermon along so everyone can. We hope you will. Uh, it will be a great day. A couple of things real quickly I also want to mention. We'll put these, I guess they're on the screen. We are in need of some folks. Uh, it takes some 200 uh, volunteers a month to pull off our children's ministry. And we have, it's amazing, we only have a few uh, spots, but we do have these that are really kind of urgent needs. Someone who will be a small group leader for second and third graders two Sundays a month during the 11 a.m. service. It's about 20 minutes of actual activity. Uh, you'll have all the resources and training that you need. I sense that God is calling every one of you to that role. So the first one to get to the Welcome Center gets it. How about that? So we, we need someone to fill in in that area. Um, you can come to the 915 service and then be a part of that twice a month. And um, it would be very helpful to us. We uh, really trying to strengthen our children's ministry, especially as we bring on a new children's pastor here shortly. We also need an infant nursery volunteer during the 11 a.m. service on the second Sunday each month. So you can help out with either of those. We also need sound techs in the elementary service from, the, from 11 to 12, just an hour slot from 11 to 12, serving once or twice monthly, preferably twice, so we can have consistency. They have their own soundboard and sound booth, but you will be trained, but we could really use some help with that. And then we need some live stream technicians. This is a great way for families to serve together. You can, mom or dad can serve with your kids as long as they're middle or high school. Um, we, we only actually stream the second service, but we do record the first as well. And it's kind of uh, important that we have plenty of people to help with that. So if you are interested and can help in any of those areas, stop at the Welcome Center, sign up, and uh, you'll get full training, and someone will contact you if you can help us out in any of those areas. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. 
And then they came to him, bringing him a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw there, that is the friend's faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8. But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose. He took up his bed and went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Then in verse 13, he then went out again by the sea and all the multitude came to him and he taught them and he passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So he rose and followed him. It happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, uh, and they followed, men, and there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, "How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners?" And when Jesus heard it, love this statement. He said, "Those who are well have no need of a physician." But those who are sick, I didn't call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then one more verse later on in chapter 10, Mark 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And look at this second half. And to give his life a ransom for many. Holy Spirit, we pray that your presence would permeate this place in these next few minutes. I ask God that your word would come alive to us. Pray, God, that you would supernaturally arrest the the attention of everyone in this room. And, God, that we would be changed by the power of your word. I ask, Lord, that you would speak through me, anoint me, though I could not earn and do not deserve it. I need that anointing. Help me to speak and to communicate your truth with clarity, with integrity, uh, with authority, and with simplicity. At the same time, speak to us in a powerful way and change our hearts and lives forever for the sake of eternity, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's one of my favorite uh, scenes. It's in the movie Amazing Grace. John Newton, who was a slave trader, he transported some 20,000 African slaves, sold them, and then came to Christ. And uh, when he came to Christ, uh, he was deeply saddened and repentant over what he had done. Of course, he is the author of Amazing Grace, uh, How Sweet the Sound that Saved a Wretch Like Me. This clip, he is speaking with Wilbur Wilberforce, uh, the great uh, activist that turned, brought an end to slavery in England. It's almost come to an end in this clip. And John Newton is begging him to use his confession to put the final nail in the coffin of that horrific crime and sin of slavery. And in this clip, he says, my memory is fading. But two things I do remember. I am a great sinner 
And Christ is a great Savior. Today I want to talk about the reason Christ came. um, And that was to be our Savior. Our text this morning is the first part of a larger section. We'll deal with the second half next Sunday. It's a section that spans from chapter 2 in the opening verse all the way to the 6th verse of chapter 3. Each one of these, there are five narratives in this little section from 2.1 to 3.6. And we will look at two of them today. Each one of the five narratives have surrounding them a controversy that Jesus ends up getting into with the scribes and the Pharisees. The five uh, controversial subsections or subtext or narratives in this larger section take place in Galilee. There will be five later in chapter 11 and 12, five more of these kind of controversial subsections that will take place in Jerusalem and will kind of balance out the narratives here in chapter 2 and 3. But all of these 10, the five in Galilee, the five in Jerusalem, all of them find the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders deeply troubled about the ministry of Jesus. And they see Jesus as radically intruding into their world and trying to change their world. And they stand against him at every step of the way. It will be actually these ten narratives, five today and next week, five more in weeks to come, that will really lead the religious leaders of the Jews to come to a firm decision that Jesus must be put to death. Because what he is calling them to do is so radically opposed to what they believed and what they had always taught and what they held so dear. So the first of these five narratives is the healing of the paralytic, chapter 2, 1 through 12. Jesus has returned to Capernaum where he had been before. You can read about his earlier time in verses 21 through 28. But here he has returned to Capernaum. He is meeting in a house. His ministry has grown in popularity. And there were many that were seeking him out. We'll not take time to read this again. This is the text that I read to you earlier. But his popularity has grown. And he has come to a house where he is beginning to teach. And crowds are following him there, seeking him out, looking to hear what Jesus has to say. As he enters a home, uh, likely the home of Andrew or Peter. He had been there earlier healing Uh, Peter's mother-in-law. As he enters this home, there is a crowd that follows him. And you'll need to go ahead and hit the PowerPoint a couple more times. I skipped a couple of verses. So as he enters the home, again, likely the home of Andrew or Peter, this crowd follows him. And, And they've come to hear Jesus teach or to preach the word. Everywhere Jesus grows, he goes, he has great crowds. People are interested not only in his miracles, but in what he has to say. And so this place is no different. The large crowd gathers as Jesus gets into this home and Jesus is preaching and teaching the word. It appears that what he is teaching and preaching is about the kingdom of God. We read in Mark chapter 1 verse 14, John was put in prison and Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we have every reason to believe that's what Jesus is teaching here in this house. He is saying the kingdom of God is near you. The kingdom of God is in you. And he is calling the people there to repent and to follow the kingdom. The house was full. And it was so overcrowded 
But there was a man that needed to see Jesus. This man was a paralytic. He was paralyzed. He was laying on a mat. And, and his four friends brought him to Jesus, knowing that if he could get him in the presence of Jesus, there would be a great chance, a great likelihood. They were almost certain that this man, their friend, would be healed. But as they got to the house, they found that they couldn't get in the house. Uh, the, the, the crowd was so large, they crammed up against the door. But these four friends were determined to get their friend to Jesus. And so the text tells us that they climbed up on top of the roof. All the houses in that day had a little makeshift ladder that would be on the side of the house. And they climbed up the side of the house onto the roof of the house. And they cut through the roof so that they could let this man down in the midst of Jesus. Now, imagine that you're at a small group meeting tonight. This evening is your small group meeting, and there you are gathered, and you got brownies and macaroni and cheese on the same plate, and all of a sudden, the uh, drywall starts caving in, and somebody lets a man down in your midst. That's the kind of setting we have going on here. Jesus is teaching. All of a sudden, leaves start to fall, wood starts to fall, wood chips, and they look up, and this man is being let down in their midst. First of all, I just want to comment. These are amazing friends, aren't they? They are undeterred. They are going to get this man to Jesus no matter what. They believe that Jesus could heal if they could just get their friend there. Can I just ask you a quick question? You don't have to answer. But how determined are we to get our friends to Jesus? Are we that passionate about getting people that we know can be changed by Jesus to him. These friends were undeterred and they made sure that their friend got to Jesus. So they let Jesus down, or they let the man down in the midst of the crowd, right in front of Jesus while he is teaching. And notice the statement of Jesus, kind of a bizarre statement. When he saw their faith, the four friends, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, for us reading that today, we're thinking they brought him there to be healed. Their expectation was that he would get up and walk. And yet the first words out of Jesus's mouth are, son, your sins are forgiven. It helps us to understand a little bit of the backdrop in the ancient world. And indeed, all of the Old Testament world, there was an understanding that sin was intricately attached to sickness. And all those in the Old Testament believed that sickness was in somehow, somehow related to to a sin that had been committed. Now, while we don't subscribe to every individual sickness has an individual sin attached to it, those of us who understand Scripture understand that indeed every sickness and indeed death is a result of sin, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And because of that, they were cursed. And because of that, our bodies are getting sick all the time. And it's all a result of the fall. And so they weren't all off. And so Jesus turns and he says to this man, first words out of his mouth, son, your sins are forgiven. There was a sense that forgiveness would push back the withering and the sickness and the decay. And it leads me to my first truth this morning. And that is this. It is possible to be truly whole only when the breach occasioned by sin has been healed through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You can't be truly whole until that chasm that, that has been created between you and a holy God has been fixed 
by Jesus Christ. Until that moment, you can be healed of something else. Your physical ailments can go away. Your emotional struggles can go away. But until the breach between you and God has been fixed, you cannot be truly whole. Scripture is clear on the fact that sin separates us from the fellowship of God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Numbers 3.23, we read, be sure your sins will find you out. In Hebrews 4 and verse 12, we find that all of us are naked and open and exposed to the eyes, the penetrating eyes of God and His Word, showing us our need of Him and our shortcoming in His presence. Scripture is also clear on the fact that sin leads to death. Romans 6 and verse 23, it is the wages of sin that is death, but it is the gift of God that brings eternal life. I want you to think with me for just a moment. This death that comes as a result of sin in the garden, that death has been passed on to us all. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. The apostle Paul says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone has sinned. And so scripture is clear on the fact that sin leads to death, and that death has been passed on to all of us, but God sent Christ to deal with the sin problem. How many are thankful God sent Jesus to deal with the sin problem? John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. You say, we cannot be whole. Look at me for just a moment. We cannot be whole. No matter what healing we get, we cannot be whole unless this sin problem is dealt with. Hank Simon, writing in the New York Times, says most incompetent people, listen, most incompetent people don't know they're incompetent. In fact, researcher Dr. David A. Dunning of Cornell University reports that people who are incompetent are more confident of their abilities than competent people. Dunning and his associate Justin Kruger believe that skills required for competence are the same skills required to recognize that ability. If you're like me, you may think we're all doomed. If, if incompetent people don't know they're incompetent, then we have a problem. Kruger writes in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, not only do incompetent people reach erroneous conclusions and make unfortunate choices, but their incompetence robs them of the ability to realize it. It's the way we are spiritually without Christ. Our sin not only separates us from God, But it blinds us to the predicament that we have, that we are so far removed from him. I'm going to read you a quote, A.W. Tozer, my favorite author. A.W. Tozer, in his little book, Christ the Eternal Son, says this, listen. The gulf that separates the creator from the creature. The gulf between the being we call God and all other beings is a great and vast and yawning gulf. If you don't engage in deep thinking, it may not seem so amazing, but if you've given yourself to frequent, thoughtful consideration, you are astonished at the bridging of the great gulf between that which is God and that which is not God. Picture with me for just a moment this holy, perfect, righteous God. 
so holy that only that which is perfect can even enter into his presence. And then all of us, no matter how good we are on our best day, best week, best month, the Bible says our righteousness is filthy rags. There is this huge chasm between us and him. But Jesus came to bridge that. Aren't you thankful for that? Jesus came to bridge that gulf. But until that gulf has been bridged, you cannot be truly whole. So Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven you. As the text goes on in Mark chapter 2 and verse 6, it says some of the teachers, I love this. This is maybe my favorite part of this whole passage. Some of those religious people in that room. The teachers of the law, the scribes, they're sitting there and they are thinking to themselves, what's he doing? Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. This is blasphemy that this teacher, this, this instructor, this rabbi is actually proclaiming this man's sins forgiven because that is something that only God can do. And then there's this really scary... Uh, part of the text, Jesus knew what they were thinking. Does that scare anybody else? He knew not what they said, but he knew what they were thinking. They didn't have to say it out loud. He knew what they were thinking and they're grumbling in themselves. And so he turns to them and he says, why are you over there grumbling? Why are you complaining? Why, Why are you saying that I don't have a right to say his sins are forgiven? Which is easier, he said, for me to say? Your sins are forgiven? Arise, take up your bed, and walk. But then he goes on to say, but so that you'll know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, sir, take up your bed and walk. And he took up his bed and he carried it out and everybody was astonished as he walked out carrying his mat. And they said, we have never seen anything like this before. You see, the scribes were not at all happy about Jesus pronouncing forgiveness. They were quite frustrated that Jesus thought he could do that. These were scribes who were schooled in the written law and in the oral interpretation. They couldn't even become scribes until they had taken a test and had hands laid on them. They couldn't try to to, to make out any decision in in the courtroom until they had been ordained as scribes. They're going to show up at every corner with Jesus. They're going to pick at him all the way through the gospel of Mark, trying to find fault in him. You all understand there are still religious people that make their way into the church, that their greatest joy is to find somebody making a mistake or pointing their finger at them for a fault. That was the scribes. They were offended by Jesus. For only God can forgive. Who does he think he is to forgive? This is blasphemy. And by the way, they weren't all that far off. In Psalm 102 in verse 3, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all thine iniquities. It is Jesus, it is God who forgives. In Psalm 130 in verse 4, there is forgiveness in you. In Isaiah 43 in verse 25, God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. In Isaiah 48 in verse 11, he says, I'll not share my glory with another. In Daniel 9 in verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. 
So they were right. Let's look right here for just, they were right. Only God can forgive. And so their criticism, who is he to forgive, seems to be on the right track because only God can forgive. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he asked them a question. Think about this question. It's a pretty good question. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Or take up your bed and walk? You see, the scribes thought it was a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no verification to that. You know, I, I can say your sins are forgiven and nobody in this room really knows if it's true or not. You can't see someone's soul. You don't know whether their heart's washed clean. That's an easy thing to say. But to say to a lame man, get up and walk, there's a little pressure on you. I mean, he's got to either get up and walk or you look like a fool. And so Jesus says, which do you think is easier to say? And they, of course, they, you know what they're thinking. That's what they thought. They thought he was getting off with some kind of cheap grace. Just said, ah, your sins are forgiven with no verification. The miracle would have to be verified. They thought that Jesus was offering cheap grace. And then Jesus does a miracle. He says, but that you may know. So you can know. That I really have the authority to say your sins are forgiven. Take up your bed and walk. And he picked up his bed and walked. And all of a sudden, watch this. The forgiveness that he had proclaimed. Now had a miracle verifying and validating that claim gave him the authority and the assurance to the paralytic that not only now could he walk, but his sins were forgiven. It leads me to a second truth, and I'm going to ask you to think with me. This is a little bit of theological thinking we need to engage for just a moment. The second truth that I want you to get this morning is that the verification of our forgiveness or our justification, I'll talk about that in a moment, is the miracle of the resurrection. That which, that which verifies that we are forgiven is the resurrection of Jesus. Let me talk about the word justification for just a moment. Those of you who already know, sorry to bore you. Those who don't, learn something here. Justification, quick crash course. What does it mean that we are justified? The simple way to remember is it means just as if I'd never sinned. We receive forgiveness from Christ. We stand in Christ. So when the father looks at Kevin Holt now, he does not see Kevin Holt and his bad morning and the things he did that he shouldn't have done in his attitude last week. Thank God. How many thank God he does not see that. But what he sees instead is Christ because I'm in Christ. He looks at the righteousness of Jesus. I'm accepted in the beloved. And so it is just as if I never sinned. When I place my faith in Christ, I stand in Him. The Father sees Christ, not me. And I am justified just as if I had never sinned. How many are thankful you're justified this morning? All right. The verification of our justification. Look, Listen. Had Jesus stayed in the tomb after He died on the cross, we'd have no forgiveness. Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ is not raised, we are still dead in our sins. Look at Romans chapter 4. Look what the Apostle Paul says. He's talking about Abraham. And he says, when God counted it to him for righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Look at this. I love this. He was handed over to die. 
for our sins. But he was raised to life to make us right with God. The King James says he was delivered for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. So you see, when Jesus came out of the tomb, he validated the proclamation on the cross. It is finished. And our sins now we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Take it to the bank. I know that I'm justified because Jesus not only proclaimed it, but he rose from the dead to verify. Say amen if you're thankful for that. So the verification of our forgiveness, justification is the miracle of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there is no forgiveness. But he bore our sins and the resurrection provides us the assurance of our forgiveness. The parochial school, there was a middle school boy who stood with his back arched and his hands stretched out and clutched and clenched together. And he said to his principal, give it to me. Principal asked, how many times have you been to my office? And the little boy said, not enough, I guess. Principal said, you've got the belt each time. Yeah, I can take whatever you give to me. The principal paused for a moment, got quiet, and he looked at the middle school boy and he said, today you're going to learn grace. The boy asked, are you going to let me walk? And he said, yeah, I'm going to let you walk. The boy studies the face of the principal and he said, no punishment at all. Oh, yes, the principal said, there's punishment. What you did was wrong. There's always consequences to our actions. I knew it, said the boy. And he stretched his hands back out and clenched them together, ready to take the stripes and said, go ahead. Principal takes hold of the belts, folds it in two, and then he hands it to the boy's teacher. He tells the boy, I want you to count the blows. The principal extends his hands, clenches them together, and says to the teacher, ten blows. And he said again to the boy, I want you to count them. The belt snaps across the outstretched hands of the principal. Shock registers on the boy's face. By the fourth stroke, tears are welling up in his eyes. Stop, stop. But he kept going and he kept counting five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. The belt continued to strike the principal's hands. After the ten strokes, the principal stands with his face glistening with sweat his forehead his hands are swollen and red and he reaches over and puts his swollen hand on the little boy's shoulder and he simply said grace how many are thankful for grace that's what you and I deserved but Jesus took it for us and then he came out of the tomb three days later to validate the claim that we are forgiven Verification of our forgiveness, justification is in the miracle of the resurrection. Let me move very quickly to the second part of this narrative. It's the calling of Levi, the tax collector. Jesus went out to the lake shore. Again, he taught the crowds that were coming to him as he walked along. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he said to Levi, follow me and be my disciple. So Levi got up. And followed him. 
So after this great demonstration of power in this home where the paralytic is healed and this great victory, Jesus does what he does often, and that is after a great miracle, he retreats to a place of rest. Sometimes to a mountain, sometimes to a wilderness here, to the sea. But in this case, the place he retreats to is not really the kind of place of rest that we kind of picture when we think of the seashore. I'll not take time to read you the text, but when you read Mark's gospel, the sea really was not a place of quietness and peace. Mark chapter 4, there's a great storm. And again, in Mark chapter 6, at that same sea, there was a great storm and the disciples are afraid. And so really the sea here represents not that which is peaceful and tranquil, but instead it is a place that though on the surface it may seem peaceful, it is a place where there is fierce conflict. So Jesus returns to the seashore and as he does so, he sees Levi who is a tax collector. And here Jesus calls one of his followers, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. He is a tax collector. He works for the IRS. How many love the IRS? All right. JB loves the IRS. He works for the IRS. So be nice to JB. Do not tick JB off. All right. So, but he calls one of his followers here. He is a publican. He is a tax collector. One of the most hated people of the first century, William Barclay, describes taxing in that day. Look, look at this description. There was a purchase tax on all that was bought and sold. There was a bridge money to be paid when a bridge was crossed. Road money to be paid when main roads were used. Harbor dues to be paid when a harbor was entered. Market money to be paid when a market was used. Town dues to be paid when the traveler entered a walled town. If a man was traveling on a road, he might have to pay a tax for using the road. A tax on his cart, on his wheels, on his axle, on the beast which drew the cart. There was a tax on crossing rivers, on ships, on the use of harbor quays, on dams. There were certain licenses which had to be paid for engaging in certain trades. They taxed everything and everybody. And tax collectors were hated because they would always cheat. They, you, you, need, you need to walk across that bridge. So not only is it the normal tax, I'm going to require you to give me a little bit more. And tax collectors were wealthy But they were cheats and they were hated. They were so hated, they could not even testify in court and they had been excommunicated from the synagogue altogether. (laughs) Yet Jesus, look at me for just a moment, calls him to be his follower. Which leads me to the third truth. That is that Christ calls people out of their deep darkness, out of their utter loneliness, out of their most frightful circumstances and he offers forgiveness to them. Jesus doesn't call people who already go to church three times a week and they're pretty spiritual. You don't have to do that to be called by Jesus. You, You don't have to have proven how spiritual you are and then he'll call you. How many are glad he doesn't only call perfect people to himself? Let me try again because everybody ought to raise their hand. How many are glad? How many are glad he doesn't call only perfect people? Here's a lonely man. He doesn't have any friends. He has a few friends, but they're all like him. We'll talk about that in a minute. He doesn't have any godly friends. He's not even allowed in his own synagogue. He can't even testify in court. He's hated by everybody. Everybody kind of walks around them. They're considered scum. They're, they're considered the, 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 the dirt of the earth. And yet Jesus calls him. The seashore was a place of strife and conflict. 
Levi was hated and was an outcast, but Jesus offered him forgiveness. Let me just say this. It often takes us to get to a place of desperation before we find his forgiveness. Sometimes you've got to get to the point where you realize how bad you really are without him. And that's when you can reach out and find him. Bruce Thielman writes about his trip to Copenhagen, and he says Copenhagen's a nice city, and there are many things to see there. If I could only spend one hour in Copenhagen, the place I would go would be the Church of Our Lady. That's where the great Thorolsden statues are located. He said, when you walk into the church, it's very dim, but after you're there for a few minutes, you can see the statues. They're carved out of cold stone, and they look so warm, like living personalities so warm that they melt your heart. And he goes on to say, there was one statue of Christ, this is Thielman's description, with arms extended, a very beautiful statue. And he said, I stood there and I looked, but his eyes seemed closed. And I I looked and looked, tried to figure it out, tried different angles, and his eyes were closed. And finally, Bruce Thielman says, I I decided that apparently this was a statue, even though his arms were extended, it was a statue of Jesus praying. He said, then there was an elderly elderly gentleman sitting in a pew watching me and probably had seen this happen before. And he said, you have to kneel to see his eyes. So Thielman stood in front of that statue and then he knelt down. And as he knelt down, he said, I looked up and those eyes, I could see them perfectly. They were so warm, so compassionate. It was as if Jesus was calling me and reaching out to me and offering me his love. As I read that story, I thought about this. Sometimes you've got to reach that point, don't you? You've got to be Levi, the tax collector, and realize I'm pretty bad, and I need Jesus. And that's where Levi found him. And so then uh, Levi is so full of joy about his new experience. Um, actually, can we go back one? Because... Um, the last section of our text, I'm going to read the whole text to you. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples. I love this. So, so Jesus wins the really bad guy to himself. And then he gets invited to dinner. Okay, it's one thing to win a really bad sinner. It's another thing to hang out with them. You all understand that. And so Jesus gets invited as a dinner guest. And, but it's not just Levi. He gets invited there with Levi's friends. And the only friends he has are other really bad sinners. And so Jesus, the Son of God, goes in to the tax collectors and all these disre- disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. Aren't you thankful? That's what we all are. There's many of that kind among Jesus' followers. We were once lost, but now we're found. And so when the teachers of the religious law, here they are, show it up again. Pharisees saw a meeting with tax collectors and other sinners. They asked his disciples, why in the world is he eating with such scum? We may not say that out loud, but we probably thought that a time or two. When Jesus heard this, he told them, I love this. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And I've come to call not those who think they're righteous. Look at this, but those who know they are sinners. Let me wrap this up. Uh, Levi was so happy. 
so full of joy about his new experience, he throws a banquet for Jesus and his followers. And he invites his fellow tax collectors and others called sinners to dinner. By the way, it is most often the new converts. It's most often the brand new Christian who has come out of a deep, dark world. They're usually the best evangelists for Jesus because they want their friends to know what they know and to have what they have. Those of us who have been Christians for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we sit in church every week thinking we're really spiritual like bumps on a log and never win anybody to Jesus. But it's those people that are on fire because God has changed their life. We need to remember what he's done for us so that we can share that with others. Amen? That was free. I just thought I'd throw that one out there for you. And so Jesus now is at this meal. The religious people are complaining. These folks don't eat their food, according to the law. They're not washing their hands right. They're eating stuff we shouldn't eat. It was disgraceful to have a teacher of the law recline at a table with those unversed in the law. And so they are offended by Jesus. The Pharisees and scribes criticized Jesus because he failed to observe the distinction. I want you to look at this. This is... This is the landing, okay? This is what I'm most happy about in this whole sermon. The Pharisees and the scribes criticized Jesus because he failed to observe the distinction between the righteous and the sinners, which was essential to their spiritual piety. They thought to be godly, you had to know the difference between a sinner and a religious person. And they criticized him because he had not made the distinction. Which brings me to the final point. And I, I know pride's a bad thing, but I'm kind of proud of this point because I really like this. Look at this. Christ does recognize the distinction. Oh, he gets it all right. Between the self-righteous and the hopeless sinner. They're saying, you don't know the difference. He's saying, you better believe I know the difference. And I didn't come for those folks that don't think they need me. I didn't come from the self for the self-religious, self-righteous, super-spiritual person that thinks they don't need me. I know the difference, and I came for the broken, hurting, sinful person who says there's only one way that I can find an answer, and that is to find it in someone greater than me. He does recognize the distinction. And Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost. Let me uh, close with this story. Pastor Clay, if you want to come. Philip Griffin preached a sermon called A God Who Redeems. I so wish I'd preached it. It's a great sermon. But in that sermon, um, he says this. Let's listen. I saw a sign once that I love. It was a lost dog sign. There was a big cash reward for whoever found the lost dog and a description of the dog. Here's the description. Listen to this. It said he's only got three legs. He's blind in the left eye. He's missing a right ear. His tail has been broken off. And he was neutered accidentally by a fence. You can laugh. It's okay. Ouch. He's almost deaf. Get this. He's almost deaf and he answers by the name Lucky. (laughs) 
A dog isn't lucky. He's been through a whole lot of mess. But he is lucky because he's got an owner who loves him a whole lot and wants him back. And that, folks, is the reason Jesus came. Because he loves us a whole lot and he wants us back. Father, thank you for your word today. I thank you, Lord, that um, you do love us. And you did come to die for us. And you do, Lord, want us back. And I thank you, Lord, that um, there is redemption. There is redemption through Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, speak to hearts and lives today in this room. If there are those who have lost their way or have never known you, I pray that they can experience your love, your peace, and your forgiveness in this moment today. Your heads bowed for just a moment. Um, Maybe you're here today and you've never invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. You've never experienced that kind of grace. Now, you believe Jesus died on the cross. You've just never received it as your own, but you quite honestly are broken, hopeless. You feel like you're kind of at rock bottom. You kind of feel like you can't find your way, but today you hear the Holy Spirit saying, there's forgiveness, there's hope in me. If you'd like me to pray with you, just by an upraised hand, if you'd say, I I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I'm not serving him today. But I want him to be the Lord of my life. Would you just slip up a hand right where you're at? Anybody in this room that would say, pray for me. I want to surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus. Anyone in this room this morning? Anyone in this room? I wonder how many would say this. I'm a believer. I love God. I know he loves me. But I've kind of wandered a little bit. Really not where I need to be today. And I want just, I'm not going to ask you to come, but I'd love to pray with you. Nobody's looking around. And you would say, would you pray for me? I, uh, I've wandered a little bit, but I want to get back near to him. And I know that he's welcoming me. There's a hand. Are there others that would raise it there and there all over the place? Thank you. Thank you. Let's stand together if, if we could. And those who are going to be baptized, you can go ahead and prepare for that. And uh, we'll be just two or three minutes and we'll be baptizing. We're going to sing this chorus together. Let's just worship him together as we sing.